Good morning, everyone. It's good to be able to worship with you today. It's always good to be in the house of the Lord. Let's pray together as we get ready to open up God's word together. Join me. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of coming together today. We thank you for our church, for our leaders, for all of our brothers and sisters that we can fellowship with here today. Lord, thank you for giving us your spirit that strengthens us and encourages us, makes us effective witnesses for you. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be working even right now in this place to guide us into truth, to draw us to your son, to help us see your glory. Bless each one, Lord, as we open up your word and speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, of course, was Easter, Resurrection Sunday. You may be aware that some Christian denominations have church calendars that guide them for weekly emphasis and preaching. And the Sunday following Easter is designated as Thomas Sunday by the Eastern Orthodox Church. I don't know about you, but I've never heard of Thomas Sunday. I did find it interesting that Pastor Jeremy used the first part of John chapter 20 as the text for his Easter Sunday sermon, setting me up perfectly to follow that Orthodox tradition and preach today on the second half of John chapter 20, which is the text used for the idea of Thomas Sunday. So I hope you didn't get your full of resurrection preaching last week, because we're going to keep it coming this week. As we look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Join with me as we read that text. It will be on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bibles or devices. John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is a a reference to... uh, time you might remember that Jesus appeared to the 10 or to 10 of the disciples on the evening of his resurrection. Of course, Judas wasn't there, but neither was Thomas. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his in his hands, the mark of the nails, 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Do any of you like Thomas and I have skeptical personalities? I'm a true child of my birth state, the state of Missouri, which is known as the show-me state. I have to see it to believe it. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came And stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is obviously where I got the title for my sermon, which I've titled, Eight Days Later, A New Perspective. This is also the reason why this particular Sunday is designated as Thomas Sunday. As eight days later, using the Jewish custom of including the days on each end in the count would make this, in this passage, this narrative, a Sunday. So it would be this Sunday immediately following Resurrection Sunday. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Yes, it's now eight days later, and suddenly Thomas has a new perspective. He now sees everything in light of this new revelation That the one he saw crucified, dead, buried, was now standing before him in the flesh. Even if it might have been a very special kind of flesh. Let's talk for a minute about perspective. Perspective is a fickle friend. We've all seen some of the things you can do creatively with perspective. This is the someone holding the Arc de Triomphe. Seeing something from one perspective, let's go to the next slide. If we see this from one perspective, we might be fooled into thinking that this girl is standing on a ledge. But in reality, she's laying down. Here's another one. This bridge looks like it's the bridge to nowhere. But from another perspective, you can see where it goes. 
What's really hard is that in some instances, we can be totally confident that we're right about something, but when we see it from a different perspective, we see that maybe there's another way of looking at it. What do you think? Is it a six or a nine? There's a great movie called Risen that was put out by Columbia Pictures four or five years ago. What I love about the movie is that it looks at the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a new perspective. It focuses in on the days following the resurrection and the actions of the disciples, which the Bible tells us only a little bit about. But it looks at it from the perspective of a Roman soldier tasked with the job of discovering what happened to the crucified body of Jesus when it comes up missing. It definitely takes some creative license, but at the same time, it portrays scenarios which are very reasonable and in line with the details we're given in the scripture. I highly recommend the movie. Check it out. It's Again, called Risen. So today I want to take a few minutes and put a little twist on our perspective of the resurrection. I love apologetics, and so we're going to look at some of the apologetical arguments for the resurrection, but from a different perspective. Here's the question that I want to ask and answer today. What are the difficult facts you would have to accept in order to not accept the historicity of the resurrection? Did you get that? It was a little confusing. Let me, let me say it again. What are the difficult facts you would have to accept in order to not accept the historic, historicity of Of the resurrection. As we unpack this, I will approach this by giving you five conclusions, one at a time, and then explain them. So, the first conclusion that you must accept in order to reject the historical account of the resurrection is you have to believe that the disciples stole the body out of the tomb. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then somebody had to steal the body because the tomb was definitely empty. I would contend that there are only three suspects. The Jewish officials, the Roman officials, and the disciples. We know that it was the Jewish leaders that requested the guard be put on the tomb. So it makes no sense that they would steal the body. They clearly stated they didn't want any stories about him being raised from the dead, being perpetrated through the community. The same is true of the Roman officials. They were the ones who had crucified him. It was their attempt to squash the potential rebellion of this 
king of the Jews and his followers. Both the Jewish and Roman leaders certainly would not have stolen the body without later unveiling it in order to stifle Christian preaching and refute their claims. Yes, the only one who had any motivation at all to steal the body was the disciples themselves. And if it was the disciples, we first have to ask two questions. One, how did they get past the guards? And two, why did they leave the grave clothes behind? If they were stealing away the body while the guards slept, would they be so cavalier as to unwrap the body from its grave clothes? And carefully fold up the face cloth, as is described back in verse 7 of chapter 20. These guys would have been in a hurry. But somebody unwrapped the body, folded neatly the face cloth. As you'll see as we proceed, neither did their stealing of the body in the first place make any logical sense based on the circumstances and preceding events which unfold in the days and even the years ahead. And yet this is the first thing that I believe you must accept as fact if you're going to reject the historicity of the resurrection. Conclusion number two. You have to believe that the soldiers stationed at the tomb were so inept as to sleep through the stealing of the body, thus never engaging the thieves, but nonetheless were able to identify the disciples as the thieves. These soldiers would have had to have been some ancient version of the Three Stooges. There are so many holes in the account of the soldiers stationed at the tomb. Why was there no evidence of a battle? No dead soldiers. Not even a wounded disciple. Why were the soldiers not punished for an offense, falling asleep while on watch, which was widely known to be punishable by death? I read about an interesting contention that possibly the body was stolen out of the tomb before the guard was even placed at the tomb. While this is possible, according to the timeline in Matthew 27, specifically verse 62, that would mean that the soldiers put the seal on the tomb without first checking to make sure that the thing that they were guarding was even in the tomb. And then, secondly, it would mean that later that day, they decided for no reason at all to roll the stone away and check on the body, discover it gone, and make up the story about falling asleep. It just doesn't make sense. The most comical part of their story is the claim 
that's found in Matthew 28, 13. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The obvious question is, if they were asleep, how could they possibly know that it was the disciples that stole the body? And if they were not asleep, then why did armed soldiers not prevent a few fishermen and a tax collector from stealing said body? And yet, this is the conclusion we must accept if we're going to reject the historical account of the resurrection. In the face of this evidence, one commentator laments. Their motives are unclear. Perhaps they were swayed by the authorities' gold. Perhaps they feared the truth would not be believed by their commanding officers. Perhaps they simply could not understand what had happened and preferred the lie. In any case, they agreed to actively subvert the truth of the resurrection day for a risky and flimsy lie, supporting the enemies of Christ. Conclusion number three. You would have to believe that 11 disciples, among others, lived and died for something they knew from personal experience to be a lie. The accounts of the lives of many of these disciples is included in the Bible as well as other historical documents. They were the original recipients of the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. No one would have dreamed in the days after the crucifixion of Christ that this tiny band of followers would so successfully carry out that great commission that just three centuries later, Christianity would be the official faith of the empire. Along the way, many of them lived lives of denial and suffering. We're told that Paul was beaten, imprisoned, stoned, starved, lost at sea, and daily in danger of all kinds of evil on his journeys throughout the Roman Empire. Many, if not most, of the disciples eventually ended up dying violent deaths for their faith, including Peter, who was crucified, Paul, who was beheaded, and James, who was stoned to death. For me personally, this is one of the strongest pieces of evidence to the truth of the gospel. I just cannot accept that 11 disciples and others, including the Apostle Paul, would live lives of suffering and then die violent deaths for the sake of a narrative that they knew to be a total fabrication and horrible lie. And yet again, that is what you must believe in order to reject the historicity of the resurrection. 
Conclusion number four. You have to believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, rejected the faith while Jesus was alive. But after Jesus was killed, he converted to Christianity with the knowledge that it was a complete hoax. We're told in the Bible that Jesus had four younger brothers. They would have actually been half-brothers. We learn in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers remain unconverted near the end of the time of his earthly ministry. We then see in 1 Corinthians 15.7 that Jesus appears to his brother James after his resurrection. And subsequently, we hear of James worshiping with the believers in the book of Acts and then later, of course, penning the epistle of James. So again, we ask, would someone who was so skeptical of his own brother's messiahship that he neglected to believe throughout his earthly ministry then make a profession of faith that affected the rest of his life based on something he knew to be a lie? And remember, James was stoned to death for his faith. It just doesn't make sense. Conclusion number five. You have to believe that 500 people got together and successfully kept the secret of their lie, we saw the risen Christ, or that those 500 people saw a group hallucination at the same time. We read in 1 Corinthians 15.6 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He adds that, At the time of the writing, most of them are still alive. How do we explain away this claim? I think there are only two ways. One, 500 people got together and successfully all agreed upon and kept alive for many years. Anyone who knows anything about the human nature knows that it's virtually impossible to get 500 people to agree on anything. Yet alone, a lie. And then most amazingly, to not have any of them change their minds and admit the fabrication. The only other possibility and I use that term loosely because I don't really believe it is a possibility, is that 500 people saw and believed the same hallucination with such certainty that they propagated it to others in the years ahead. If you know anything about hallucinations, and I don't, except what I read this week, they just don't work that way. All the science and literature agrees that a mass hallucination of this magnitude would have been an event that never happened before 
or sins. Five conclusions that you must believe in order to reject the historicity of the resurrection. You know, the name Doubting Thomas is probably an unfair one. For this one circumstance of doubt, which lasted a grand total of eight days, Thomas is labeled forever as Doubting Thomas. If he's Doubting Thomas, then I'm Doubting Chuck, and you're Doubting you. I've thrown a bunch of historical facts and arguments at you today, but they are not facts and arguments just for the sake of knowing facts and arguments. Listen to the final words of this passage again. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. God does not want any of us to doubt the truth of the resurrection. He's given us adequate proof to make a convincing argument of its historical accuracy. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And most importantly, he wants us to go on to the kind of belief that allows us to have life in his name. I challenge you this morning to remember that there can be as little as 12 inches between heaven and hell. If the knowledge stays only in your head and doesn't move to your heart, doesn't cause you to surrender to Christ then it's just head knowledge we need to by faith surrender our will to his and personally receive him as Lord and Savior of our lives if you've never made that step of faith I challenge you to do it today I'd love to talk to you about that and pray with you. I will be up here after the service, up front, if anybody would like to talk about that. You know, the truth of the resurrection emboldened the early Christians to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They spread out across the known world and proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus wherever they went. Thomas himself became a missionary and eventually went to India to help establish the church there before he died a martyr's death while there. Our mandate is still the same one that these apostles received from their risen Lord. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, because I am risen from the dead, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church, it's eight days later. Let's take this new perspective to the world. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the strong evidence that you have given us of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is very reasonable and convincing evidence. But we also understand and even thank you that you require more than that. More than just head knowledge. But you require us to surrender our wills to yours. And believe with faith. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here today that maybe has not ever made that step of faith to surrender their will to you. I pray that they would do that even right now. Lord, we ask your blessing on each one of us as we go from this place. Help us to go knowing that the one who was risen from the grave goes with us. That you are always with us by your Spirit. And help us to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.